0: Today's teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. David Brooks has an article in The Atlantic right now uh, describing the incredibly low level of social trust that we are experiencing as a society in this moment. If you want to read the article, uh, the title is America is Having a, a Moral Convulsion. Uh, and In it, Brooks describes social trust, uh, his, making this case that it's on the decline or that it has declined significantly. He defines it this way. Social trust is the confidence that other people will do what they ought to do most of the time. In a restaurant, I trust you to serve untainted fish, and you trust me not to skip out on the bill. Social trust is a generalized faith in the people of your community. It consists of smaller fates. It begins with the assumption that we are interdependent, our destinies linked. It continues with the assumption that we share the same moral values. And so uh, Brooks is trying to make the case that we are experiencing a, a massive decline of this. He, he sets it in a historical perspective that these sort of moral convulsions happen every 60 years or so in, in America's history. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, And and the article describes some of the categories of insecurity that we're experiencing as a nation um, that are both contributing to and a result of this decline in social trust. Uh, These categories of insecurity really resonated with me as as I read them, because I I feel like many of us are experiencing them. I'll give you the four quickly. The first is financial insecurity, and there's a bunch of statistical realities that go along with this, but one that stood out to me is that um, by the time the baby boomer generation had hit the average age of 35, they owned 21% of our national wealth. Think about that. So by the time they got to 35, 21% of the national wealth was controlled by that generation. Conversely, uh, millennials who are going to hit 35 in the next three years or so as an average age um, own 3.2% of our nation's wealth. So just in that one statistic alone, we see sort of a a massive change in the financial security of our our nation and these uh, upcoming generations experiencing that. The second insecurity he mentions is emotional insecurity, and this has been documented widely, but we're experiencing serious challenges in our culture across the board in child development. uh, We have skyrocketing instances of of depression and anxiety. We have a startlingly high suicide rate. So we have financial insecurity, emotional insecurity. Uh, We also have what he identifies as identity insecurity. So um, all the traits uh, that were once assigned to you by your community that you got in relationship with your family and the community that you were you were from now you sort of have to determine on your own you have to you have to decide what your place is in all these different levels of, of, of how you fit in the world so um, your identity your morality your 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 gender your vocation your purpose your place your sense of belonging and self-creation becomes this major anchor anxiety-inducing act in, in young adulthood for, for many of us. So financial insecurity, emotional insecurity, identity insecurity, and then add on to that social insecurity. The, the antenna that we use to measure how, how people are seeing us are up and they are on absolutely high alert. Am I liked? Am I affirmed? Why do I feel in, invisible? We see ourselves in how other people think about us. Their snarkiness turns into my self-doubt. Their criticism turns into my shame. Their, their obliviousness becomes my humiliation. So danger is ever-present. The article makes this point. And then um, Brooks goes on to, to quote this uh, educator, Frederick de Boer. He says, for many people, listen to this, for many people, it is impossible to think without simultaneously thinking about what other people would think about what you're thinking. This is exhausting and deeply unsatisfying. As long as your self-conception is tied up in your perception of other people's conception of you, you will never be free to occupy a personality with confidence. You're always at the mercy of the next person's dim opinion of you and your whole deal. I thought that was so spot on. And also there's a weight that comes with hearing that because what do I do? Just say, oh, I don't, you know, like sort of, you see people deflect this. I don't care anymore about what people think about me. But really and truly, that's very hard to actually arrive at a place where that's true. There has to be a deep inner healing. There has to be deep work of of, uh, sort of like your soul being balmed with love in order to get a place where you're not rising and falling based on the antenna of other people's expectations and evaluation of your life. So in this world, with these these insecurities, financial, emotional, identity, social insecurity, nothing seems safe. Everything feels like chaos. And Quite frankly, you might disagree with aspects of of Brooks' categories or how he describes them or or even the overarching analysis of the article, but I think most of us can agree. We are experiencing some massive challenges around the social trust of our society and how that relates to our security as individuals and as communities. I feel many of the insecurities, let me just say that, uh, that Brooks is mentioning. And he's making the case, essentially, that well before the pandemic, as a matter of fact, well before this year and the virus and the murder of George Floyd and others, or even this election moment that we're currently in, that trust was deteriorating, but that 2020 certainly has accelerated the decline of social trust at nearly every level. And one Turner phrase in the article particularly haunted me. Brooks said, renewal is hard to imagine. Renewal is hard to imagine. Destruction is everywhere and construction is difficult to see. We see massive amounts of deconstruction happening in our world, both in our our society's actual institutions and our evaluation of those institutions. Deconstruction is everywhere. But actually, fruitful, meaningful building is difficult to see. I I feel like one of the ways I've described the challenge of, of this year so far is a failure of imagination. I feel like I've been living in something like crisis mode, for way too long. And what it's done is deplete my capacity for imagining new things. Renewal is hard to imagine. And then I think why it haunts me is I flip to our church's vision and mission statement is joining God in the renewal of all things. And I compare that with my lived experience that renewal is hard to imagine. And I'm like, what are we going to do? Can we participate in something that we even struggle to imagine? So then is my deepest hope some sort of meaningless ideal, or is it something that I can actually move into and join God in? What do we need most as people these days? What do you need most as a person these days? And as I got to the end of the article, it's it's quite long, uh, uh, I knew it was unrealistic (laughs) But since we've been re- reading this uh, you know, week after week together, I wish The Atlantic would have dropped the Sermon on the Mount in at the end of David Brooks' article, um, because I think when we get to a place where we need help with our imagination for what renewal can look like, this sermon... Um, is particularly challenging, is particularly startling. It it, it can, I think it can spur creativity in some unexpected ways. I think it can begin to help us rebuild the capacity for imagining what renewal might look like, individually, communally, and then widely in, in our society. When we need help with our imagination for what renewal can look like, I think this sermon is a tremendous place to start. We've said this each week, but the first word of the sermon, um, the word that's repeated throughout these Beatitudes at the beginning of each one is this word, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, right? And 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 for each of these five weeks, we, we've mentioned that that word blessed is this Greek word makarios. And uh, it's actually difficult. Several of the words we run into in the New Testament as we're really studying, uh, it's difficult to just take one English word and get the equivalent of what makarios actually means. But it literally means happy. <laughs> So happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, right? And we're starting to get at the, the upside down nature of the kingdom, even just the understanding of that word. But whatever is being described in these Beatitudes, happy are those who, whatever follows, it is it is quite a long way from the state of our nation, from the state of our society, from the state of many of our inner lives as, as, as being described by Brooks and, and, and felt by many of us. This word bless indicates flourishing. Whatever, so think about that for just a minute, what that means about the heart of God. Whatever Jesus is trying to convey to us, it is not a static moral code uh, that is meant to make us just good or, or to have the appearance of good as an outward evaluation. It is meant to lead us to flourishing. It is meant to lead us to abundant life. It is, it is meant to lead us to the most meaningful human existence that is possible. Uh, Saint Saint Arenas of Lyon is famous for uh, famously attributed the quote that the glory of God is a human being fully alive and I sort of grew up with the conception that the glory of God was this shining transcendent thing way off in the distance and maybe you got at it a little bit in some of the best worship songs but or or standing in nature you know perceiving the Grand Canyon or some high uh, you know the high stretches of a mountain pass but The reality is, whatever the glory of God is, even though I think it's it's contained in those things as well, it's also a human being fully alive, someone who bears the imago Dei, living and flourishing at full capacity, at, at, at full love, full imagination, full life, full relationship. We have to know that that's true because God's heart over and over is bent in the scriptures to bringing human beings to this place of salvation, to this place of flourishing, to this place of relational connection with God in relational union with one another. That's, that's deeply ingrained in, in, in God's heart. It's not just some shining thing out there. It's actually depicted in our life and character. And in context, so Iranius, what he was actually saying is that for human beings to live fully, they need a vision of God. And correspondingly, as you see a vision of God, your life begins to flourish more and more. Like the bigger, the grander, the more beautiful, the more personal, the more intimate, the more real your vision of God. The more beautiful, personal, intimate, real your actual life begins to become. And so I think many of us in the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to go for this. We need a revamping of how we imagine life and how we imagine God. First of all, God, not as some uh, grumpy, disappointed stepfather that can barely stand you, except that you happen to be related to his biological son. God rescues, God saves, God delivers because God delights. Uh, I came across this in the lectionary uh, one, one morning this week that God has rescued me and brought me to a spacious pl- place because God delights in me. The psalmist says this centuries ago. and It is so profound for our understanding of Yahweh, for our understanding of Jesus, for our understanding of the Holy Spirit. Your redemption is not a chore for God. It is a delight for God to bring you to full life, to bring you into union, to bring you into the family, to declare over you all the promises of the gospel. It is a delight for God. It's what he loves to do he cannot get enough of it the kingdom of God is the kingdom of flourishing abundant life he invites you into full relationship full union full inheritance unending love because it is his joy I'm reminded of these inspiring words from Eugene Peterson he says every time that there's a story of faith it is completely original God's creative genius is endless. He, he, he never, He's never fatigued and unable to maintain the rigors of creativity and resorts to producing mass copies. Each life is a fresh, fresh canvas on which he uses lines and colors, shades, lights, textures, and proportions that he has never used before." What we see what is possible. Anyone and everyone is able to live a zestful life that spills out of the stereotyped containers that a sin inhabited society provides. Such lives fuse spontaneity and purpose and green the desiccated landscape with meaning. And we see how it is possible by plunging in to a life of faith, participating in what God initiates in each life, exploring what God is doing in each event. This is the heart of our God. To be glorified in each individual unique life, and to fold those in in a fabric, in a quilt of society, where we can live and express this kingdom together is so inspiring, so beautiful. So when Jesus is talking about a pure heart, we have to hear him talking about a heart that's fully alive. A heart that's beating wild with love. A heart that is not hardening in self-indulgence, but breaking with kindness. A heart that is secure in the affection and affirmation of the Father, basking in the promises of God. A heart that returns over and over again to the well of living water that Jesus describes as coming from his very person. Now, most of us, if we're really honest at base level, everyone in human society is trying to have a heart that's fully alive. Jesus in the gospel, God in the scriptures essentially saying that you can't get at that any other way than deep, meaningful relationship with the God who made you and the people who you live with. And so this, these narrow paths of selfishness and self-indulgence that are so masterfully marketed to us in our society, they do not have the capacity to actually meet the deep needs of our soul. There isn't wisdom there to lead you to abundant life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. It's a continuation of that relational process. We we know the New Testament uh, vision of the heart is not just the organ that beats in our chest. It's not just our feelings. Um, Our heart, when you hear the heart in the in the New Testament, you should think mind, will, and emotions. This is our thoughts. This is our consciousness, but it's also our volition, our ability to make meaningful choices in the world. It is our emotional reaction to our realities, how those emotional reactions get ingrained in us in a process of spiritual formation from the time we' We begin reacting to the world as soon as we come online in our consciousness as, as children and all through life, right? This is more than just the beating you know, thing that's pumping blood through your veins. It's more than just how you feel in a given moment, your moods. This is your, your mind, will, and emotions. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard famously s- said that to, to be pure in heart is to will one thing. It is to give your life a center and to continually return to that center. And Mother Teresa uh, has a book on the Beatitudes that I've been looking through uh, each week as we've, we've been moving through. And uh, I, I came to this, this this week about what it is to be pure in heart. She says, the clean of heart move through life constantly choosing God so that as they leave life, they receive the promise of this Beatitude. They enter the presence of their Creator. The clean of heart, however, do not have to pass from the earth to have a vision of the divine. They see the Spirit of God in those close to them, in their friends, and in the people they meet on life's pilgrimage. As followers of Jesus, those who live single-hearted can glimpse the Spirit of God in their opponents, even in those who may hate them and wish them evil. As you hear that if your heart's like, my, like, I, I long for that. I know I need that. I, I, I fall short of that over and over again, but my heart is, is moved to say, oh, I want that. I, it's someone breaking open what Jesus is talking about and saying, here is life, come receive. It, it is so powerful, but how, how, how do we do this? How can we get a pure heart? This is a question that's been asked for, for forever. It's, in a sense, it's what the, the Brooks article is asking for us as individuals and for us as a people. It's what, it's what the Psalms have been asking. It's what great literature and, and, and poets and philosophers have been asking for forever. In, in, the, in, the, in the, one of the most famous uh, poems in human history, the Hebrew writer asked this in Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? We assume this works for any age. How can a young person keep themselves pure? And the answer is by living according to your word. On one level, that sounds so remarkably simple, but you think about the the give and take of revelation and response that takes place there. God speaks to us. We respond to that word, and now we're in this dialogue of relationship, this dialogue of life. It's the same way intimacy works with a parent and a child, a spouse, a friendship, right? You share, you you give expression of your heart to that person. They respond in, in, in a meaningful, loving way, and now you're in this dialogue of relationship. How do we keep ourselves pure? We interact with the divine character through the divine word and this give and take, this dance of response and relationship that actually mirrors the way Trinity works, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, inside of one another, inside of the very nature of the Godhead, extending out in community. Our hearts are made pure by living in response to God, God's character, God's revealed words. So what that means quite simply, is that we don't get a pure heart on our own. This is not a a sending out for you to go achieve a a high moral standing and place on your own, out of your own willpower, simply um, holding up an example and going after it. We get a pure heart as our hearts are changed by love, specifically by the love of God. We have such an outward and inward dilemma in our in our country, in our world, even in the church at times about how we understand what what a full, abundant, or pure life is. Basically, it's like is what matters what you do on the outside or who you are on the inside, right? If you're an egomaniac and you're morally suspect, but you support certain policies, is that purity? Is that, is that the abundant life we're after? Or if you keep yourself really devoted to God in your personal devotion life in your heart, but you ignore your neighbor, is that purity? Or, or put it the other way, if you're fighting for your neighbor and you're working for, for good so, uh, social change in the world, but you're eaten up by all these malformed desires and and, and you're essentially addicted and disappointed and depressed on a regular basis by these malformed desires and you're running out of energy to do is is that purity is it an inward thing is it an outward thing blessed are the pure in heart for they will see god So to get an understanding that, we have to see who's speaking this word. And of course, Jesus is speaking this word. And and he begins to sort of resolve that inward-outward dilemma by how he lives his his life and what he demonstrates uh, before us. But uh, remember what the Gospel writer John says at the very beginning of, of his account of Jesus' life. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is Himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. So, so Jesus is this self-disclosing uh, of God's heart and character. It is His inward and, out, inward and outward purity demonstrated in the world. So He's, of course, He wouldn't simply be saying, Go off on your own and get a, get a pure heart, and then your reward will be one day down the road you'll see God. Those listening, as Jesus was giving this sermon, were, were hearing an invitation into relationship to follow this Jesus. You, hearing this sermon described even now, are hearing an invitation into relationship to follow this Jesus, to solve that inward-outward dilemma through relationship. So Essentially, it's like, see and respond to God, who's, who's sitting there on the mountainside giving this sermon. See and respond to God. And your heart begins to grow in purity. As your heart grows pure, guess what? You're going to see more and more of God. And your heart is going to be purified more and more by that, that, that vision. It's this old old theological concept of like justification and sanctification. Everything becomes ours through the gospel, through our union with Jesus, because of what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. But we grow in sanctification. We grow in purity of heart as we stay in that relationship. One of the worst mistakes the evangelical church has made in the last 100 years is to make everything simply about just getting your ticket stamped because you said some right prayer years ago that got you in with God. And now irregardless, irregardless, regardless of whether or not you follow Jesus on a daily basis, right? And and, and I'm not creating some uh, false dichotomy about does our salvation count forever or is it works-based. I'm saying like they absolutely go together. There is an absolutely linked chain between coming into relationship with Jesus through the gospel and following Jesus so that our heart is purified in a relational context through sanctification, Jonathan K. Dodson, who has written a book on the Beatitudes that I think has been helpful for me at a couple of points in this sermon, uh, in the series, he says, uh, A grand fissure exists between the outer and the inner life that only the love of God can heal. And for that healing to occur, we must admit our lack of integrity. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the only way to have a pure heart is to realize you have an impure heart. We must admit to God and to ourselves that we lift our souls to another, to that which is false and not true. Only then can we face this test honestly. This, of course, guarantees failure. With unclean hands and an impure heart, how can anyone pass the test and gain entrance to the mountain? We need a cure so powerful that it heals us inside and out. The healing and purifying of our hearts through relationships comes to us in the gospel. It comes to us in the person of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this announcement of his kingdom that you and I can be made one with God and one with one another. So as as we close, I just want to restate a couple of simple realities that won't be new to you but are absolutely essential to moving into the invitation of this beatitude. The first is to remember Jesus' heart is pure. That That's where that's where we can begin and I'm not going to spend a ton of time convincing you of this, but if you look at the temptations at the beginning of the of Jesus' ministry and His life in the Gospels, they walk us through these archetypes that we experience and, and that come to us as, as as those passing through the human experience. And if you look at the temptations Jesus is is tempted with in, in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry, it, it looks on the surface rather simple. Like He's hungry, He's tempted with bread. Somehow, bizarrely, He's taken to the top of the temple and it's like, throw yourself down and everyone will see that you're... That you have miraculous power, they'll affirm you um, and, and and they'll celebrate you. And, and then the last one is he's taking his show. Like this one is a little more like wow, that would be actually wildly tempting. He sees all the kingdoms of the world and he's given. It's like this. All of this can be yours if you'll just you know worship uh, something other than God. If you'll actually you know worship at the at the uh, the feet of the accuser here. So bread, temple, kingdoms. If you look through the temptation, you see there's a personal level to it. There's a communal level to it, and there's a societal level to it. If you you go deeper, you begin to see the archetypes of all of our temptations. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. They're all right there. I'm tempted at the personal level of my appetites. I'm tempted at the communal level of how I'm seen in other people's eyes. You get actually the insecurities that Brooks is mentioning in his article. They all show up in these archetypal temptations of Jesus thousands of years ago in the wilderness. How, how, how I experience my appetites. How I experiencing getting or needing affirmation from my immediately surrounding community. How I get affirmation and power and influence in a wider societal level. Right, Appetites, a- ambition, a- 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 all these things. And at each one, Jesus goes back to that question in Psalm 119. How does a young man, right here he is, 30 years old, keep his way pure? He responds to each temptation with the revelation of God's word by by keeping to God's Word by the revelation of the Father's heart and character. So he says, yes, I need nourishment. These desires that are sort of a torrent inside me, they need fulfillment, but I'm going to let them be fulfilled in God's way because that's the only way that my soul is actually going to be satisfied. Yes, Jesus needed affirmation from his community, but he wasn't going to get it by this shortcut miracle that the enemy was inviting him to. He was going to get it by living this life of faithfulness to the way of the Father. Yes, actually, Jesus is going to inherit the kingdoms of the world they're all going to, 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 to become a part of the kingdom that he is coming to build he, he needs that worldwide influence and power but how is he going to get it not by the way of self-promotion but by the way of the cross and resurrection Jesus' heart is pure because at every level of temptation that we experience as human beings he spoke back the heart of God, the word of the Father, his heart is pure so, so he is our redemption, and He is also the, the the way that we live in response to these temptations as they come crashing into our lives. So Jesus' heart is pure, and here's where that becomes gospel, is Jesus makes us pure. Jesus makes our hearts pure, what we couldn't do on our own. Remember the story of Jesus healing the leper? And, and leprosy is this... Um, this condition, this disease that most of us have no real uh, personal familiarity with. But it was devastating, right? Because not only was it a sickness that threatened your life, but it also meant that you had to be removed from your community. You had to live outside the camp, outside the city on your own, just with other people who were struggling with leprosy. And when, when Jesus heals uh, uh, this this leper in the gospel, he makes the man clean. It says he makes the man clean. So it's, he, he was healed of the disease. His skin became clean. So inwardly and outwardly, he makes the man. clean but then he tells him interestingly to go to the priest to go to the temple go through the official channels not just to be pure but to be declared pure in a communal way so that you can enter back into worship so that you can enter back into society so that you can rejoin your family and that all makes sense inside of the context of the first century but guess what Jesus doesn't do that He doesn't go through those channels. For the first time in history, a a preacher, a a friend of mine said this. For the first time in history, you have uh, the impure coming in contact with the pure. And instead of the pure being made impure, the pure makes the impure pure and and then goes on his way. And it's like he so thoroughly transforms and changes this life. And he is not tainted by the impurity of this person. Jesus' heart is pure and he makes us pure. The cross is the full expression of this. He becomes sin for us on the cross that He might make us the righteousness of God. So quite simply, I want to close with this reality. In union with Jesus, we are given and grow in pure hearts. In union with Jesus, we can live with pure hearts. Brooks is right. Whether his full diagnosis of all the causes is right, renewal is hard to imagine. The New Testament talks about that in in the context of the reality of the things we most want in the kingdom of God, that there's a veil there's a veil that we can't see through. That there's a veil that blocks our vision, but also not just our vision, our actual experience of life feels cut off from God, feels cut off from one another. The thing, like Take God out of the picture. Do you want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control in your life? The fruit of the life of the Spirit, the reality of the life of the kingdom, we are all intrinsically designed to long for most, except we can't get them, except through relational connection with God and connection. With one another that we get through the gospel, and so it's said a bunch of different ways. I'll just give you a couple Second Corinthians 3 Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, right? The temple curtain was torn. All these metaphors and pictures for us that we can enter fully in the veil is taken away. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not this short-circuited, small freedom of individual self-indulgence, but this large, beautiful, glorious, spacious freedom of knowing who you are, of being brought into intimacy with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. And this is your family now, not according to the way we evaluate one another, but by this massive gospel love that breaks all categories. Where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. What happens to us as we have a vision of God? We are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's a commentary on this beatitude. You want a pure heart, right? They're listening to Jesus. So they're looking at God who's saying, have a pure heart, and then you'll see God. So it's this back and forth, give and take of relationship. I I see and experience God. I respond to what I've seen and experienced. And now I grow in purity of heart. It's this relational give and take of growing in the reality of the kingdom. Renewal is hard to imagine. We have to grow into it. And my experience of how we grow into it is, is breakthrough and habits. There are some times where God comes into our life in a powerful, dramatic way. He accelerates his movement through therapy, through a worship service, through through the prayer and ministry of another believer, through reading something we've never discovered before. God just powerfully accelerates his work of freedom in our life, of, of giving us a vision of God, of calling us to purity of heart. But we also have to support that through the daily sustaining grace of growing in our habits to say, I'm not just going to wait for some picture of God to come to me. I'm going to go to the place every day where I know I can get a picture of God, where I can gaze on him, when I can fix the attention of my soul on the person of Jesus. It's accelerated by grace, it's sustained by grace, it is breakthrough, it is habits. I love how 1 John 3 puts it, Dear friends, we are now children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall all be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All we who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. Here's another commentary on this beatitude, this give and take of when we see God, we're going to be made like God in some full way that we experience a taste of, a foretaste of now. And so we have this hope. We purify ourselves by doing what? By seeing God, by gazing on the person of Jesus, by looking to Him. See Jesus, be made pure, see Jesus. This is the breakthrough. And the habits are sustained how? I'll I'll give you four massively quickly and then I'll be done in Scripture. You want to see God? Go to His Word. Go to His Word every day. Use the lectionary or use the Bible in a year app or get together with a friend or family and just read His Word. Read His Word every every day. Go and look for the person of God, the person of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Through His Word, He promises He's going to show up there. He promises that the rhema, spoken Word of God, is going to come through the Logos written Word on the page and you begin to experience this God. Go look for Him in Scripture. Go look for Him in nature. The heavens the declare the glory of God. Some of you this is one of the most powerful ways you connect with God. You get out in nature, and you walk through, and you remember his glory is depicted in this astounding creation that he made, right? And and, and, and probably it's not going to just be one of these four things, but and there's others that I, that I, that I could list, but I promised you I was going to give you four, and then we were going to quit. So go, go to scripture, go to nature, go to community, right, where two or more are gathered in his name. He is there. This is the power of being, even on Zoom, right, even on Zoom, there's the power of, of knowing that there's someone else who bears the image of God, and if that person has believed the gospel and is filled with the Holy Spirit, they can represent the gospel back to you. Speak your true identity. Speak forgiveness. Speak mercy. Remind you of who you truly are, right? We need one another to remember who Jesus is in, in our midst. We see him in the scripture. We see him in nature. We see him in community, and we see him in worship. We lift the attention of our eye. Right, scripture and worship are so powerful together. You're reminded about something about God, and then you look up and you celebrate God for that reality. Such power in that, and, and, and directing the attention, the affection, the delight of our soul back to God, and realize His delight is directed towards us, and there's a powerful exchange that happens there. It is a purifying of our heart as we see God in this sort of cycle of this beatitude. We see Jesus. We're made pure. We see Jesus. And things are going to interrupt distress or disappointment or discouragement or anxiety or or lust or fear or just the noise of our political moment or or the pain of this year or all sorts of despair might might crash in on you. What do you do then? Get yourself a vision of Jesus. Go back and, and, and look. Remember. Run to Christ. This is how our hearts are made pure on a daily basis, how we're washed clean. Right? Jesus said this to his disciples, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And then he proceeds to wash their feet. So you don't need the whole thing to start over again. You are safe and secure, you are healed, you are beloved in the gospel in union with Jesus. But we do need to get our feet washed. We do need to have the dirt cleaned off on a daily basis because that selfishness crops back up, because the brokenness of the world comes crashing in. But you're never going to run to Jesus and not find Him there. What a powerful thing. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just pray for this church. Lord, I pray we could experience Your presence right now. I pray that You would minister, God, through this technology, through the power of Your Spirit to wherever this is being heard. That You would lift up the person of Jesus. That You would Uh, give us utter confidence for the first time or for the millionth time in the gospel that we can rest in it, that you purify us by the cross, by your resurrection, but you also invite us to participate. God, may we participate today. Minister by your Holy Spirit in all the secret places that I I couldn't possibly name if I was given all the time but you can speak to in one moment because you know us so well, Lord. Speak, Holy Spirit. Minister to us right now. In Jesus' name, amen.